Hi, this is uh, Justin Vaughn. You are listening to The Big Tent on Radio Boise. I'm here with Corey Cook and Jen Schneider. We are all professors in the School of Public Service at Boise State University. And we are uh, continuing with our uh, public affairs show here every Thursday afternoon on KRBX 89.9 FM, Caldwell, Boise. Today we are joined by Jason Eichhorst. Jason's, um, uh, it's a f- you've been to Boise a few times in your life. Yeah, I've uh, been here a few times. But welcome again. Thank you. He's come a long distance. Jason's a, a, a scholar currently based in Mannheim, Germany. Uh, he's a postdoctoral researcher in quantitative methods and uh, involved in a political economy of reforms um, uh, uh, project at the University of Mannheim. Those are a lot of big words that <laughs> I said quickly because I didn't want to bore anyone. Um, Jason, what do you do? No offense, Jason. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's no, no offense, Jason. These are just fascinating. <laughs> this, this life of yours that I just, you know, delegitimized, what's it include? <laughs> So uh, essentially what I do is I explore that tension that exists between how we think political representation ought to work and how political representation does work. So as as humans, we put systems on the way the state operates, and that creates the well, relationship between elites and the way that they respond to our interest as in public opinion. So it's kind of exploring the way in which we can look at kind of different political outcomes under different political systems and different types of democracy. So I'm not a political scientist, as Justin and Corey like to remind me all the time. <laughs> no, you are not. <clears throat> um, but Lucky. what do you mean by political representation? Like, can, can you sort of explain that in a way a lay person could understand? Yeah, so it's how politicians or elites or whatever word we want to use uh, acts in the interest of the represented. So how they act in the interest of, of citizens and voters uh, to manage the state and shape the state in the way that we want them to operate. So in our context, if I vote for a Republican, I expect them to act the way I think they're going to act, the way a Republican Correct. would act. Yes. Okay. All right. Yes. And sometimes that adjusts based off of do we have a system like what we have in the United States with single member, single member districts and personal representation? Or do we do something like what might exist in somewhere like uh, somewhere in Latin America where you have really strong parties, proportional representation, multiple parties? And they're all democratic parties or they're all democratic systems, but they operate in, in very different ways. But they can all be considered democracies. So uh, this um, I was just trying to get the, the title of your talk up. I failed. Uh, <laughs> what? <laughs> You're going to be talking about some, uh, you, you yeah. do a lot of stuff. This is kind of broad uh, 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 project uh, for you, but you, and you, they, you go in a lot of different directions. And so tomorrow you come, you came here because you're going to speak at Boise State and present some of the recent research you, you've done um, that kind of drills down in a particular direction on this. What, do you, what, what are you going to talk about? So I'm going to talk about the system that exists in Bolivia. And they, so Bolivia has a history of military coups, undemocratic regimes, in the 1980s, they transferred to a uh, democratic regime. And during that transition, they implemented an institution or, or a democratic system that uh, was primarily to maximize a stable transition. And the weird thing about that is, although it, it made transition possible and it stabilized the democracy in the very beginning, it had a tendency to undercut long-term political competition. And as... In a system, we kind of need to understand how 
yes, we want democratic stability, but we also need to maintain viable political competition in the long run. And Bolivia provides that opportunity to look at these unintended consequences that exist when we implement institutions and systems that, uh, that solve short-term problems. So I just, I just want to make sure I understand. So there was a, there was a lot of uh, instability. There's mm -hmm. military coups. Mm -hmm. Leaders are changing all the time. Mm -hmm. Democracy sort of comes on the scene. Mm -hmm. And when you say they tried to create a stable system right away, are they doing that by allowing a bunch of different voices and a bunch of different interests to be represented in order to sort of just calm things down and improve representation? But you're saying there's a trade-off. Yeah, there's a trade-off. So, and and that's a, that's a really solid point because you want to have interest represented. You want to have plural democracy incorporated into the policy-making process. So the institution itself reinforced inter-party collaboration and and bargaining. Now, over time, that can be a problem because voters can no longer distinguish between party A, party B, and party C because during this bargaining period, they're constantly working with one another. So it'd be almost as though if the Republicans and Democrats were, were bargaining nonstop and doing uh, bipartisan agreements and ultimately turned into one single party that voters are incapable of distinguishing. At that moment, party systems have a tendency to collapse. Too much cooperation, not enough competition. Correct. Okay. Yeah. okay. And now, of course, you still want, there's a fine line as that. we're seeing yes. today. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, one is that in terms of the time frame, right? Because a lot of uh, Latin American democracies haven't developed to that point, right? In terms of political mm -hmm. stability. So how do you, like, how do you know when we've reached the long term, right? Yeah, and that's something I'm kind of struggling right now with this project is that you can see it coming. So you can see the extent to which party brands or the way that we see what parties should be doing as breaking down and we sh and we see that voters are incapable of of distinguishing between the two but we don't know if we're at a point in which democracy has been stabilized and achieved right so if you start to turn back the other direction then you reduce you know you increase competition and conflict too much and then you threaten democracy right yeah and that i think that's what makes this kind of a really fascinating subject with this i mean we're constantly towing the line between maximizing competition or maximizing a political representation itself, mm -hmm. um, and so I just I just don't know. At this moment, it's just the parties have broken down, and we need an explanation for why. And hopefully, I can provide that. Are there other are there other nation states? Are there you know comparable cases, or is this is this pretty unique to Bolivia? The system itself is unique, mm -hmm. but the I, in so in coalition politics in Western Europe, particularly, we see a very similar element of mm -hmm. I mean, not as dramatic. But we do see that that voters uh, have a difficulty distinguishing parties when they work together in the same government. Mm -hmm. So um, coalition partners have a tendency to converge to a very similar, I guess we would say like a party brand, uh, when they work together for a longer period of time. So voters are incapable of distinguishing. Uh, and that's kind of the, so I engage that literature a lot to try to understand what's going on in somewhere like Bolivia where party brands are even less distinguishable, less developed. They have, they have shorter legacies. Uh, there's no history. There's, there's not, there's no attachment between the voters and the parties themselves because it's a new democracy. So I wonder if, if that's part of the reason that we also seem to see in uh, those coalition type governments, 
you do see um, sort of more radicalized parties because uh, emerge because they're they're sort of able to identify a brand in a way the ruling coalition has not. Have you thought at all about that? I, I just made that up. So if I'm totally wrong, <laughs> you can tell me. I haven't. Then you're not a political scientist. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the club. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that makes sense. I mean, if, 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 if you're at a point in which the voters can't distinguish you between the opposition, then it's kind of a problem. And so you can either take out distinct positions or you can engage populist messages. You can do something in order to distinguish yourself. And sometimes coalition partners have to do that. So before they go into elections, coalition partners have a tendency to vote less with their with their partners. Mm. Uh, there's more conflict. They t- they have they perform speeches more frequently on the legislative floor, so they communicate directly to their voters and they say, "Hey, this is what we're doing. We're going to elections. Yes, we had to bargain, but now we have to be victorious." Uh, so you see that, and I don't know if they, I don't know the extent to which it would be to an extremist position, but you see even within moderate parties that they're making attempts to uh, distinguish themselves. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll talk a little bit more about some of the implications of some, some of the other work you've done uh, okay. has on American politics. Uh, so stay with us. Uh, we will return in a moment. KRBX Radio Boise, community radio for the Treasure Valley and the world. And we are back. This is Justin uh, Vaughn. You're listening to The Big Tent. I'm here with Corey Cook, Jen Schneider, and our guest today, uh, Jason Eichhorst, who is here all the way from Mannheim, Germany. Jason, again, welcome to uh, uh, the Big Tent. Uh, you recently published um, some work that um, has particularly has uh, have implications for the American uh, uh, political system, right? Maybe, yeah. uh, and, and we're in the thick of primary season. Is it going to be a big uh, midterm election year? Um, can you tell us a little bit, kind of, about what that what that research finds and? Yeah, so legislators and political parties want to communicate to the voters that they're going to work in their interest and that they're competent managers at the state. And they can do this with two different strategies. One is they could actually be competent managers <laughs> in the state when That's way, crazy. Stop it. But Jason, we're going we're to talk about the American system. So <laughs> <laughs> absent that. <laughs> Was it live tweeting Fox and Friends? (laughs) (laughs) And the other way is, well, yeah, making statements. (laughs) And so you thought I was joking? I I had this. No, Corey's read this work. (laughs) (laughs) And the and the so when performance is bad, uh, parties and legislators have this tendency to use statements as a way to balance. What we think as as noisy signaling, noisy brand, like pretty much just informational weakness. And in these statements, uh, parties and legislators tend to use very concrete language. Uh, so we so we find this, and we use this in English-speaking industrialized democracies in our research, which is Canada, the U.S., U.K., uh, Ireland, or Northern Ireland. New Zealand and Australia. And we see this very stable pattern of incumbent parties using concrete language during periods of poor performance and using more vague language during periods of strong performance. And this works because what we see is that 
political parties never want to be concrete. You, you don't know what the future is going to look like. You don't know to whom you're going to bargain, with whom you're going to bargain. You don't know about the economic system, the global environment. You have all these things that are making policymaking very difficult. And if you make a promise now, you're going to need to follow through on that promise uh, or be removed from power. You're going to look like an incompetent manager. So parties do everything that they can to not be concrete, but to be vague. Um, can you? This is going to put you on the spot, but could yeah. you give an example or sort of a hypothetical of concrete language versus vague language? Yeah, so concrete language is things like definite, um, uh, con also the word concrete. Uh, like you're going to make specific policy promises or there, yes, I will yeah. do this. Yes, and vague yeah. language is more in a, like an appeal to values or identity or something like yeah, that. Yeah, like okay. subjunctive clauses, uh, oh, maybe, Lord, possibly, maybe. Okay. Yeah, great. Yeah, this, yes. Uh, Sonic like different weird adverbs. Uh, and you can. And diphthongs. <laughs> yeah, no. Diphthongs. I don't even know what those are. <laughs> Clearly. Gerunds. Gerunds. <laughs> But like so, in computational linguistics, we have dictionaries that that isolate words that tend to be very concrete and those that tend to be very vague, and we use that information. So you can run experiments on students, for example, and see that students who have informational deafness use very concrete language in their presentations, and students who have less informational deafness, for example, if they're given a lecture on multiple topics. Uh, where each topic is only given attention for two minutes or so, they use very vague language to kind of hide and, and they're BSing. And, yes, they're yeah. blowing snow. Okay. Yeah. So I think. And it, you can train a computer to recognize those things, is what you're saying. Yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. So the so the idea being is that so political parties consistently produce uh, like pro like uh, programs before the election. And those programs are full of all these statements about what they're going to do, what they won't do, what they've been doing. Uh, essentially, they're a way of having direct control over how we think the political party operates. And in that, we see not only variation in vague and concrete language, but also variation that is consistent with our with our theoretical argument. And so what, what I did was I, I generated a, a program that went online, scraped all these statements offline or online, uh, took all the statements, put them in sentences, and then grabbed the dictionaries that had the vague and concrete words and essentially did a, a search for this language and counted up the frequency of these, of these words. And from there we can say, okay, if you use more vague words, you're more vague, and if you're using more concrete words, you tend to be more concrete. So, uh, you're, so based on the research that you did, right, you can mm -hmm. probably generate some predictions of the election cycle that we're in right now. Mm -hmm. And so... So I guess to put it into real terms, what would your findings suggest that if our listeners are, are kind of listening to the concrete or vague language coming out of elected officials running for office, what kinds of politicians right now in the United States should be talking in what kinds of ways? So, for example, like Republicans should be communicating in a very concrete way. They're not they're not getting much accomplished. They're under the lens. They've got two major policy achievements. But ever since they've been kind of slow and there's been a lot of tension there's been we're a unified government that can't get anything done so at this moment you would find that candidates and incumbents would be concrete about what they're going to do in the future as a way of balancing what is seen as incompetent governing um, now liberal democrats on the other end would be vague they would they would draw attention to to this uh to slow policy making, but they wouldn't make any claims about what they're going to be doing, there, which there's no need to. 
we if if voters think that the current incumbents are in, are incompetent, then allow the voters to think that way without drawing attention to yourself. But that is if we had sort of typical party politics. And right. I'm thinking right now, like there's a lot of pressure on the Democratic Party to actually be specific about policies, and in particular how they're going to help the working class, right? There's a lot of critiques going mm-hmm. on about that. And so I wonder, and not just say, point to Trump's weaknesses mm-hmm. or argue for impeachment. Mm-hmm. But that's maybe that's not arguing against what you're saying. Yeah. Um, well, but inter- but yeah. it will be interesting to see if that if But that's going on true. in the primary phase, right? And so yeah. it's part of the contest for the sort of this current moment. Oh, but that's right. We move to a general. I mean, at least this, the, the, the lesson I keep reading from these um, special elections is the you want to be as vague and to sort of a, you want to be as typical a Democrat as you can be, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you'll mobilize your base. They're more enthusiastic anyway. And so I think it, it's, I, at least my sense is it's probably played out just as the way that you've said in terms of these yeah. special elections. But maybe what we're seeing in the primaries is sort of this contest for what the future Democratic Party is, where that specificity is coming out. Mm-hmm. So it, this work makes sense in terms of kind of maybe explaining how a Republican or a Democrat might talk differently from one another in a selection cycle. I wonder, would there be similar I guess predictions for how maybe a Republican, one kind of Republican versus another kind of Republican would talk in a primary. So like if you're considered the establishment candidate in the Republican Party where you're not having policy success, um, would you be more likely to be concrete? Whereas maybe your populist challenger would be more likely to be vague and just say and not. What do you think? Yeah, I think the like in terms of this populist candidate who is is a challenger and we haven't really accepted populism as what's going on currently. Like, we still think that the moderate Republican is the thing that's controlling the Republican Party. Then, yeah, I feel like the populist candidate should be the one that is, that is super vague, yeah, and completely draws attention to what the moderate Republicans would be doing in the future. Interesting. Depends on who you think is in power. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> which which Republican Party is ruling. Yeah. Right, right. Fascinating. Yeah, it is fascinating. Yeah. We're going to take another quick break. We'll be back and we'll talk a little bit more about who's in control of, uh, of our national legislature right now and how that might have just changed yesterday. Uh, so uh, stick with us. Uh, we will be back in a moment. This is Derek Smalls from Spinal Tap. Did you know that dozens of people spontaneously combust each year? It's just not reported in the mainstream media. For you in the Treasure Valley who can avoid that, you've got Radio Boise on 89.9 FM and 93.5 Downtown Community Radio for Boise and beyond. Speaking of spontaneous (laughs) combustion, (laughs) Paul Ryan, guys. Uh, Uh, National Republican (laughs) politics. (laughs) Oh, man. So segueing from Jason, what Jason was just telling us about kind of, you know, legislative politics and how context shapes how candidates talk. Yesterday, massive, I mean, t- surprise to me at least, uh, Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, you know, kind of been a rising star in the Republican Party for two decades, um, just announced he's not going to be seeking re-election uh, and, and not forced out like John Boehner, you know, he's not in prison like Den- yesterday, yeah, not like Denny Hasker, <laughs> uh, just apparently decided he didn't want to be Speaker anymore and is, doesn't want to be in Congress anymore. What do you guys think? Which is weird because, you know, he's been so successful in uniting the party and it's been <laughs> such a seamless and easy task. You think that, you know, it could be more fun than being Speaker of the House of Representatives. I yeah. mean, we can 
didn't laugh, but he was kind of beloved for a while. Like, he was the golden boy, right? He was the one who was going to bring fiscal responsibility to Washington. So yeah. I go, you know, I go to the national conventions every four years, and at the Republican convention, he was the one unifying force. And it's sort of remarkable that there was one figure that it wasn't, it wasn't the presidential nominee. It wasn't, it wasn't the family members who did tributes on behalf of the nominee. It wasn't anybody. It wasn't Jeff Sessions. It was Paul Ryan. And there were a couple of controversial moments after Ted Cruz spoke, after um, there were some lighting problems at one point that was, like, very noticeable on the floor. And each time, literally, it was Paul Ryan walked on the floor and it was like, He'd calm everybody Here's down. Here's the one thing that fix we all agree lighting. with. Oh, <laughs> not fix the lighting. Not fix the lighting. Promise to fix the lighting. Right. right. But, that was, but he was the unifying force in the Republican Party. And again, it, it points to the difficulty of his task, certainly. But where the party goes from here is a, is a real serious question, I think. I mean, it, I just wish I had was a fly in the wall in his decision-making, right? I mean, is he just sort of reading the tea leaves and as you know, as information that he thinks the House is going to flip and he's not going to have that power anymore. I also keep thinking about those photographs of him sort of behind Trump, State of the Union or various public appearances where he just could not hide the sort of smirking judgment of Trump. Yeah, and it's it, just, it, it just frustrating. <laughs> he doesn't so, smirk. <laughs> so there were some rumors, you know, months ago that he was planning to seek re-election, be victorious, and then hand off the, the reins of the speakership. And, and uh, you know, if you trust the national reporting, that's what, what's been reported the last couple of days, that that was the initial plan. Then he started talking with colleagues about that and then realized that actually he'd rather not do that and step down now. Um, again, it's a fascinating timing question because it, this may, in fact, result in the flipping of the House in a way that that wouldn't have. And I certainly understand the desire to not seek re-election. I mean, his election might have actually been contentious. He, one of the leading Democratic candidates has raised over a million dollars in that race. Uh, at the same time, this put, puts Republicans behind the eight ball in the coming election. I mean, part of his narrative, his mythos was always that he was a reluctant leader anyway, right? He didn't really want to be speaker. He didn't really want to run for vice president. So maybe it allows him to sort of bow out gracefully on a personal level. Can we all agree, though, that politicians need to come up with some other explanation other than they want to go spend more time with their family. I there agree. has to be another one. I don't want to spend time with my family. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah I've met your if family, you're Jackson. listening. No, <laughs> as long as we're going there. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, his, you know, again, I, I don't know Paul Ryan, certainly. We got a chance to see him when he was here in Boise. And, you know, his, his father passed away young. And so he's mm -hmm. talked about this throughout his career, that he didn't really want to make a long career out of it. Um, it does sort of fit that you know, he does have young kids, and the idea that he was really never fully committed to a, a long career in public service does seem to be something he said for 20 years. It just is striking at this particular moment when the Republicans are at risk of losing the House, and he is a prodigious fundraiser who was holding the party together at this moment to step down. Frankly, one of the moments when the party needs him most is striking. Yeah. Washington can't be that fun right now. Not a fun place to work. Cherry blossoms are blooming. Well, that's it's, true. I take it back. It's not blizzardy <laughs> conditions like it is in Boise, Idaho. <laughs> that's, that's, right. Right. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. Is well, that snow or are all those cherry blossoms? <laughs> it's snow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so um, Paul Ryan, you know, out on, out is on his way out. Lord only knows who's coming next. Um, 
what whether it's a Republican or even a Democrat, who knows who takes that job for the Dems. Um, or whether so. he weathers even the end of the term. There's there's talk today about perhaps he would step down from the speakership right away to make it an easier transition. So he right. may not even last until the next yeah yeah until beyond the election yeah so. Uh, things changing quickly. Uh, we will keep abreast of this as your faithful public affairs talkers. Uh, and uh, we will continue talking. I thought you were going to say scholars. Scholars. Talkers, <laughs> sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, keep expect- we keep expectations low. Uh, we will be back next week. Um, and uh, we look forward to talking with you then. But otherwise, thanks, Jason, for joining thanks, us. Jason. Yeah, thank you, Jason. And, thanks, Jason. Uh, thanks for And enjoy the rest of the time here in Boise. I will.